Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. Where is our hope? What are the things that we're trusting in? What if those things are removed? What would we do? Well, this is what the prophet did. He said, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. And you know, God is calling us to do that. And we don't have to lose all of those things in order to do that. But we do have to lose the attachment that they hold on our hearts. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on the book of Habakkuk. Now here's Pastor Brian. So Luther, like all other Catholics at the time, they were thinking that we're saved by good works. Jesus died on the cross, but we still sin. So uh, we need to make a contribution by doing good works, that sort of thing. But Luther has this awakening. He has this moment where he's reading Romans. And in Romans, Paul, like I said, he, he quotes this. And, and uh, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek or the Gentile. And then he says this, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, the just shall live by faith. So Luther, he, he has this epiphany. He has this moment where all of a sudden he realizes that the gospel, the righteousness of God is brought to us through the gospel, a righteousness that we could never attain ourselves is God's gift to us by faith. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we believe in the sufficiency of that for the forgiveness of sins, and that's how we're saved. And so Luther has that experience himself, and he begins to write about this and to communicate this, and this is how what we know today as the Protestant Reformation, this is how it really began. But it was through these few words here, the just shall live by faith. As we carry on here in the second chapter, he's going to pronounce, like I said, there's a kind of a double thing, a, a judgment on Judah, and but then also ultimately a judgment upon the Babylonians who are judging Judah. And I think probably projecting out even to the end of time, there's probably something in here. Uh, but look at verse five for a second. Indeed, because he transgressed by wine, he is a proud man, and he does not stay at home because he enlarges his desire as hell, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and he heaps up for himself all peoples. He's talking about the Babylonian king. He's, he's, he has an insatiable appetite for power. And so he's gobbling up the nations. 
But look at, look at verse 13. It says, Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people's labor to feed the fire and nations weary themselves in vain? And then look at verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So what he's saying is that the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar and any other tyrant or any other ruler who is laboring to gain power over the nations, put themselves in the place of of having power over the nations, what the prophet is saying, what the Lord is saying through him, is that it's all in the end, it's all in vain. Because in the end, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So it doesn't matter how much territory one conquers, it doesn't matter how many people one has dominion over, it doesn't matter uh, who attains to the greatest position ever held in history as far as dominion goes, it's all going to slip through everyone's fingers because the Lord is going to rule. It's like the, the second song where the nations rage and the people are plotting a vain thing. The kings of the earth are gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah saying, let us cast their bonds away from us and let us cut their cords off of us And basically, they're saying, let's overthrow God. And the very next verse says, he that sits in heaven will laugh. Now, listen, this is the history of the world. (laughs) The, The history of the world is people rising up and dominating and oppressing other people with a goal of being the greatest ruler of all time. And you can just, you know, take a walk through history and you find it over and over and over and over and over. And not just in ancient times. This is the history of the 20th century. This is what we went through in the 20th century with uh, communism and all of the different manifestations of that and fascism and all of these things. This was the 20th century. And it's the 21st century. It's a man saying... We have a right to that land and those people. And this is how most of these wars have always started. So again, not to belabor the point, but verse 14, I just love this verse. It's like a promise. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. It's that simple. This is where it's headed. This is where it's ended. doesn't matter. You can get together and you can strategize and you can put all of the the forces of of all of the kingdoms of the world together conspiring against God to set up the ultimate kingdom of man and guess what the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord God's going to crush it all but there might be a lot of difficulty as we await that day. So the just shall live by faith. Now, 
we're going to skip down to chapter 3. And here the prophet now prays. Prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet on Shigianoth. Uh, Shigianoth, most people believe it's an instrument of some sort, a stringed instrument. Nobody knows exactly what it is for sure, but that it seems like that's what it is because the very last verse speaks about um, the chief musician with my stringed instruments. So, but but here's the prayer of Habakkuk. And and look at verse two. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. This rocked the prophet to the core. When he heard the Babylonians were going to come, he was afraid. And understandably so. There are fearful things out there. And there might be a time when we are afraid. There are times, of course, where we are afraid. doesn't have to be because there's an invasion of a massive army. But in some cases, that will be a reality But listen to what the prophet says here. He says, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. And then he says this, in wrath, remember mercy. I love this passage. Now, going back to the original context, remember, in Manasseh's reign, the judgment upon Judah was sealed. It was irreversible. Even though Manasseh repented himself, the the nation was set for judgment and it was irreversible. And as I said at the beginning, of course, it finally went to judgment. In 586, Nebuchadnezzar finally carried away everybody, destroyed the temple, and Judah was no longer. But here's an interesting thing. As I mentioned, Josiah, God did what the prophet is praying for because he did revive his work in the midst of the years. And in that period of time between Manasseh's death and uh, the carrying away of, of Zedekiah, there was this reviving of the work of God under Josiah. And Josiah was, um, like I said, he was perhaps the greatest king of all the kings of Judah. He comes to the throne at eight years old. And he can't do much at eight years old, obviously. But by the time he's 16, he is seeking God himself. And by the time he's 20, he is making radical reforms in the land. And he is destroying the idols, and he's restoring the worship of God. And it's amazing what Josiah does in his brief, relatively brief reign. He dies at the age of 38 in battle with Pharaoh Necho, which 
he was meddling in something that he shouldn't have been meddling in, but that was how he came to an end. But it, but it was during that period of time that there was a revival that took place in the land. But it wasn't anything that, again, could, could reverse the course of, of things, but it was a time of God's mercy. And, you know, when I think about that story and I think about where we are today in our situation I think the world itself is in an irreversible mode in its opposition to God. And, and will ultimately, everything that we read about in the prophetic scriptures will unfold. So on the one hand, it's a, it's a little bit doom and gloom. It's bleak. But on the other hand, there's the possibility and I think even the probability of God still working in the midst of the years. And I love this last thing he says, in wrath, remember mercy. And you know, just honestly, personally, I pray this prayer all the time. Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. And revive your work in the midst of the years. And that's what we long for, don't we? I mean, I don't have any... I, I, I honestly, I have zero hope that our nation will ever become a godly nation. I have zero hope that that will ever happen. But I have tons of hope that in the midst of this godless nation, God will draw people to himself like he did all of us. And that we can pray for that and we can ask for that. And that even as that happens, that could slow down the judgment that's coming. Like it did in the time of Josiah. So this is something that I think is worth considering, meditating on, believing and expecting. God to do. In wrath, remember mercy. Lord, this is what you do. I mean, God had mercy on Manasseh. Now, the most, probably the most well-known wicked king in the history of the world is a man named um, Ahab, right? Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab is proverbially, proverbially (laughs) wicked, I mean, all you do is just say Ahab and people get it. Oh, that's like a really wicked person. Manasseh was more wicked than Ahab was. And God had mercy on both of them. That's what's really crazy. So that just shows you that God does, in the midst of wrath, he remembers mercy. And he's so quick to have mercy. So as we cry out to the Lord, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on this land. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on your church. Have mercy on the people around us and believing and expecting God to do it. So Habakkuk, at the end here, he says, this. He speaks about the coming judgment. 
he, he describes here um, in really picturesque language God coming to judge. So he says, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. So Teman and Mount Paran are the southeast um, of Israel across the, the Dead Sea area in the, the land that would have been known as Edom. And so he said, God came from there. He comes from the east. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. So it's like the prophet is seeing a vision of, of the future. And he's combining the judgments, the, the judgment that will come in the more immediate future but I think he's also projecting out to the final judgment that comes. So it's almost like in his mind, he sees the judgment coming through the Babylonians, but God is the one who's, who's bringing it. But then in the vision, what he's actually seeing is what we would think of as the return of the Lord, the second coming. So the Lord comes from uh, from this east. There's a passage in Isaiah. We, we read about it when we went through Isaiah. Remember, it says that the Lord comes from Bozrah and his garments are stained with the blood. Bozrah is the same area that we're talking about here. And so he says, the earth is full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from his hand and there his power was hidden. Before him went pestilence and fever followed after his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian trembled. O Lord, you were, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. You divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows, they went. At the shining of your glittering spear, you marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the wicked by laying bare from the foundation to the neck. You thrust through with his own arrows the head of his villages. They came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. You walked through the sea with your horses through the heap of great waters. When I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. So he's talking about these judgments that are coming. But then he says this, though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, 
and the fields yield no food. Though the flocks may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Wow. So with, with this judgment pending, the prophet says, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to trust in the Lord. Although all of the prosperity is removed and everything is depleted and that there's nothing in the sense of materialistically, there's, there's nothing left, but I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. And I think that as we just even think about that, you know, where do we find our joy? Where is our hope? What are the things that we're trusting in? What if those things are removed? What if those things are taken away? What would we do? Well, this is what the prophet did. He said, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. And, you know, God is calling us to do that. And we don't have to lose all of those things in order to do that. But we do have to lose the attachment that they hold on our hearts. That's what we have to lose. You know, we thank God for his blessing. We thank him for his goodness to us. And that we do have provision, that we do have fruit that we do have the olive, that we do have flocks and food. I mean, we, we thank God for the material things that he's given us, but we have to be careful that we don't make those things the main thing. And always keep in mind that, no, you know, our trust is in the Lord because those things could just up and vanish one day. They could just disappear. And that's why... We have to be careful never to get ourselves so attached to those things that they become secret idols or things that we're hoping in or trusting in or depending on. But the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord. So that even if those things, even if I don't have those things, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm rejoicing in the Lord. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high hills. So as we just trust in the Lord, as we rejoice in the Lord, he will enable us to stand sure-footed, when everything around us might be slipping away. For the month of February, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled The Imperfect Disciple. Grace for People Who Can't Get Their Act Together by Jared C. Wilson. 
Have you ever resolved to repent from a sin only to be crushed and condemned by defeat later down the road? Or have you ever been hurt to the point that the wounds never just seem to heal, even years later? Well, one of the problems that Jared C. Wilson will help you to recognize is that unhealed wounds are not sin, and sin is not a simple wound from which you need to be healed. Jared C. Wilson shows how discipleship can be messy. This isn't a typical Christian self-help book promising to help you become a better Christian. This is a book about discipleship that puts the gospel front and center to help you sustain ongoing growth in Jesus by the same grace that saved you. In his book, The Imperfect Disciple, Jared C. Wilson will help you experience the grace of God in a practical way that will impact how you live as a Christian. Today is the day to finally learn how to live in the grace of God. Learn today about God's transforming grace. The book, The Imperfect Disciple, Grace for People Who Can't Get Their Act Together by Jared C. Wilson is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we continue our series with the book of Zephaniah. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.